If you have your Bibles, please grab those and let's turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. Title of our message this morning is All In. And we're going to look at what Paul has shared with us about being all in this morning. Um, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we do want to thank you for this rain, Lord, that you're sending our way even now. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you'll use this to water the grass and, Lord, the crops that have been planted here recently, Lord, even the cotton and other crops, Lord, that you'll use that to help it to grow. Uh, Lord, I thank you that your word, God, is what helps us grow. It's one of the things that you've given us, uh, Lord, to, to renew our minds and to help us, Lord, as we live this new life in Christ, God. You've provided your word today. And so, Lord, we come to it today with great expectation, Lord, with excitement. And, uh, God, we're asking that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would teach us, uh, Lord, from your word today. Lord, you know every person that is in this place and those that are watching and listening, Lord, today. You know each and every one of us. You know where we've come from. You know all the details of our life. You know absolutely everything, the beginning from the end. And so, God, I just pray that today you would do what only you can do, and that's speak to us right where we are. Thank you, Lord, for every person that's here. Lord, I pray that they would know that they're loved, and that, God, you already demonstrated your love toward them, that, God, even while we were still sinners, you sent your son Christ to give his life for us. There's no other kind of love than that, God, no greater love than that. So, Lord, I love you today. I thank you for your word, and we ask now that you would teach us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we mentioned last week, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul has been building a foundation for those that are in Rome, the early church in Rome, those Christians who heard the gospel probably um, as the uh, disciples were there in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. And so they would have heard this gospel as Peter would have preached the gospel and gone back to Jerusalem, I mean from Jerusalem back to Rome. And there were Gentiles that were converted from this as well. So the early church was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And so Paul is writing now and he's going to explain to them this incredible gospel. In fact, he wants to build the foundation of the gospel. It's kind of like a young horse in a round pen developing, um, if you will, the foundation And Paul was developing a very firm foundation in what it means to be in Christ. And that's exactly what is taking place here. And so he has spent 11 chapters um, explaining to them, building this strong foundation. And now it's time to open the gate to the round pin to step on. And now he's now going to now require or ask of them now to apply these things that they have learned about the foundation of who they are in Christ. And that the foundation of who they are internally now will affect what they do externally. And so Paul is going to share with them now a transition from building a foundation now to getting out and actually applying this and using this in everyday life. And that's what he begins to do in chapter 12. So follow along with me. We're going to read just a few verses and then we'll, we'll see what, what uh, the Lord has taught us here through the Apostle Paul. Paul says starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the Apostle Paul is appealing now to this group of people that are still in Rome. Um, There has been persecution, there has been difficulty, the early church is a mixture of Jews and then Gentiles, and remember the Jews didn't think the Gentiles should have the gospel because they weren't the chosen people of God, and all of this is going on in the early church, and Paul has been addressing all of these things, that we're all guilty before God, that God died for all, that he provided salvation for all who would put their faith and trust in him, and we're all on level ground, whether we're a Jew or a Gentile. And in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul addresses the church there, and he says in verse 6, he's appealing now to those that are called, now don't miss the words here, to belong to Jesus Christ. In verse 7, he says, to those that are loved by God. And then in verse uh, 7 of chapter 1, he continues, and those that are called to be saints to be saints. And he, he appeals to this group now by the mercies of God. And he has already explained in chapter um, 11 and some other passages here in Romans about this incredible mercy or this compassion of God. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have experienced in reality the mercies of God by coming to faith in Christ. In fact, God extended mercy to all humanity by providing a way of salvation to pay for the sin that separated them from God. He's he's provided mercy on the Jew, and he's provided mercy for the Gentile. And it is the compassion and the grace and the love of God that he has bestowed on all humanity. And he has provided that. And as Paul now is speaking about the mercies of God, he says something here that's very interesting. He says, so now present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, we know in the Old Testament, if you, if you read the Old Testament, that the, that the Jews would bring to the temple a sacrifice. For example, the Day of Atonement, where a lamb that had to be chosen, and there was qualifications for the meat for the lamb, that it had to meet certain qualifications, that they would actually bring a lamb, and they would bring it before the priest, and the priest actually would take the lamb, and then he would take the hand of the man who brought the lamb, and he would place that on the lamb's head. And then the priest would say some words, and then he would sacrifice the lamb. And what was happening is that a substitution was taking place, a transfer was taking place, that what was going on was the sin that the man had committed was metaphorically, if you will, transferred to the innocent lamb, And the lamb would then shed its blood in substitute for this man's sin. And he would shed his blood. That's why the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Well, that came at a very high price for the lamb. But it provided a redemption, if you will, for the man who came. It provided a way for him to be in right standing with God. That that would atone to a degree for his sin and his guilt before God. But it didn't last. They had to continually do this. But when Jesus Christ came, he paid the highest price. That God, in the person of Christ, he offered himself as a lamb to be sacrificed. And so God took the sin of humanity 
all humanity, placed the sin on the Son. And He shed His life blood for the sin of all humanity. And it was acceptable to God. And because of the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary, you and I now, by faith in what Christ did, are made right before God. What an incredible gospel that we all have been invited into and what we have received. And so now he says something here. Listen, we're no longer having to offer a blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because Christ died once for all sin. He's not going to die ever again. There's not a perpetual sacrifice. There's not a perpetual sacrificing of his blood. He died once, as it says in Hebrews, he died one time, never to be sacrificed again. It's over with. And when Jesus on the cross cried out, it is finished, he literally means that it is finished. It's done. It's over with. God's wrath has been met by his sacrifice. It was atoned for. That means that you and I have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We've been redeemed is what we've been. That we don't belong to ourselves any longer, but we belong to the one who purchased our freedom, and his name is Jesus Christ. We belong to Christ. We've been redeemed. And so now Paul says, now what I want you to understand here is he goes all the way through the book of Romans, and it's incredible. Paul wants for all of us to know that God was all in. In other words, when you read just a few pages before, it says that there's nothing in all creation that can separate you and me who are in Christ from the love of God. He says no height, no depth, there, there, there's nothing in all of creation, there's no angel, no demon, no nothing will ever separate us from the love of Christ, love of God in Christ. Why is that? Because God is absolutely all in when it comes to what he provided in salvation. For God, there is no backing out of this deal. He's all in. And so what Paul is now getting to is he has explained for all the Christians in Rome, now that you begin to understand where you are in Christ, that God says that he will finish what he starts. He who began a good work will bring it to completion, that God is going to finish because he is 100% in and he demonstrated that by giving his own life, by dying for the sins of mankind, redeeming us. He did that. Now what Paul is saying is now we're going to get into what happens in the life of a believer who now has been bought with a price. Now, he says, offer your bodies, the members of your body. Offer them now, he says, as a living sacrifice unto God. And he moves from there and says, he says, do, it's to be holy and it's to be acceptable. Now, I want you to look at the word holy here for just a, a second so that you can kind of grasp what Paul is saying. When we think about the word holy, um, some of us might think that that's living in perfection, right? Well, there's only one who's truly holy, and that's Christ. He was holy. God is holy. But the word holy here actually means to be set apart, to be set apart. It, it means um, to be different or distinct or distinguished. And it means literally this in the Greek, to be set apart for God as being exclusively His. 
In other words, what, 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 what he's saying here is that we are to be holy. What does that mean? That means for every Christian that you now belong to God in Christ Jesus. You have been placed in Christ, and now we are set apart now solely for the purposes of God. That we're now to offer something that we have. This is the temple of God. The Spirit of God indwells us here. He says, offer the members of your body now. He Offer them as holy and acceptable and pleasing to God. We are set apart for the purposes of God. Now that we understand, Paul says, all that God has done and that you belong to him in Christ, that now you are to offer the parts of your bodies to him as righteousness, acts of righteousness. Now, Paul has already talked about this as what we were before we were in Christ. And if you have your Bibles, go with me to Romans chapter 6. And we're going to read through this quickly. I want to help you understand this. This is an absolutely incredible truth And it's probably not a new thing for you to learn today, but you need to be reminded of this. And for some of you, it might be new that you're understanding this today. This is going to change the way that you think about who you are in Christ. And what Paul is really getting at here when he says, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. By the way, we all were conformed to the pattern of the world at one time. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we'll get into that next week. But in, the sixth, in, in uh, Romans chapter 6, if you follow along with me, we're going to actually start in uh, verse 5. Paul says, For if we have been united with him, that is Christ, in his death, we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin." For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. That death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he now lives, he lives unto God. Then he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now listen to these words. Let not, in verse 12, sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present, here we go, the members of your body to, as, as instruments of sin for unrighteousness, but now present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you're under grace. So what is Paul saying here? Paul says that you and I once were dead in our trespasses and our sins, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. But you have been made alive with Christ And so something incredible has happened to you. At one time, every person in here offered the members of their body to what? To unrighteousness. No one had to make you do it. You did it naturally, right? It's just what we did. But now Paul is saying this. But now that you're in Christ, now that you are a new creation... 
Now that you have understood this incredible mercy of God, that, that he is all in this deal, now he says, don't offer the parts of your body like you once did into unrighteousness, but now offer the parts of your body to what? Righteousness. And there's a big change here now because something has happened. And what Paul is really getting at here is this. That God is all in this thing. And that you and I are called by God to be used by him, to be used for him. We have been purchased by him, by the blood of Christ. We belong to him. We are in his kingdom. And now Paul says, listen, do not offer the parts of your body to unrighteousness, but now offer the parts of your body, this physical tent that we have, now offer this body to acts of righteousness. And that's what Paul is getting at when he talks about this here. Ephesians chapter 2, go there quickly with me, and we'll read what Paul says uh, to, the, to the Ephesians here. Just flip over here a few books, and you'll find Ephesians chapter 2. Hang with me through here, and this will make more sense by the time we get, we get completed. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 6. Let me read this to you. Paul's going to remind the, the, the Ephesians about what they once were, but something has happened to them. Something incredible. Paul says, and you were dead in your trespass and sins, in which you once walked, past tense, you once lived this way. It was who you were, what you were, what you did. Nobody made you do it. You willingly wanted to do it. This is your nature, he says. Just did it, man. We all did this. Following the course of this world. Following who? The prince of the power of the air. That's Satan, by the way, who is the little G God of this age. It's what he is. That's why the world is the way it is. The spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, of the mind, that was by nature... We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, listen to this, who is rich in mercy. There we go again. Because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive with Christ Jesus. Paul says that's what you once did. You were all in, guys. Were you not all in when it came to the ways of the world? All in. Now that you're in Christ... God's shown you by his own love and what he demonstrated that he is all in when it comes to salvation. And now he says, now live for God the way you once lived for the world. Instead of offering the parts of your body to things of unrighteousness, now we offer those things to righteousness. That's what we do. We offer them that way. We have been taken from what? Delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the glorious son out of Colossians 1.13. So, Paul says that we're to offer our bodies holy. That means we are to be set apart. We're to be distinct. We're to be distinguished. And go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're going to go to the Old Testament, and then we're going to jump back and finish this out and make it so it's very easy to understand. Thinking about being set apart, we're going to look at the Hebrew um, word of the same word holy, and I want you to see what God has done. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament there, back towards the front of your Bible, you'll find Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people, speaking of Israel, listen, 
holy, there's that word again, holy is the same use of the word that we see holy in the New Testament there where Paul is writing. It's the same word that he used for saints. It's the exact same word. It's the word that means to be set apart, to be distinguished and be different, to be used wholly for God. That's what the people of God are, and that's what they are to look like and act like, right? He says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people of the earth. It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people, he says. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your forefathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, listen, here's that word, and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Now, I want you to understand what's going on here. God did something for the nation of Israel. They were in Egypt for 430 years. The people of God had been growing and building into a mighty nation, but they were in slavery. God comes, sends Moses. He says, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. God says, I'm going to lead them out with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. God's going to do what? He is going to bring his people out of the slavery of Egypt. And God says, I am gathering a people for my own use. I chose you. I've redeemed you. I have purchased you. You are my people. And he took the people out of slavery from working underneath Pharaoh as as brick makers to build the Pharaoh's kingdom. You and I once were being used by the enemy, Satan, to glorify and to to be a proponent for his kingdom. But we were enslaved. We were a slave to sin and brokenness and rebellion and all that came along with that. We were enslaved. And what did Jesus do? He has redeemed you. He's taking you out of the the darkness and he's brought you into the glorious sun, the light of the kingdom of God. The same thing he did for the people of Israel. And God said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring you out of Israel, out of Egypt... And I'm going to take you through the Red Sea. And that is a baptism, if you will. He parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land. And here comes Pharaoh. He's coming after the people of God to bring him back and to enslave them again. And what does God do? He wipes him completely off the face of the earth. And this is where many, many Christians live. The Israelites, in their journey through the prompt to the promised land, in their journey, don't miss this. God says, I'm taking you to a country that I'm giving you. I swore to your forefathers. There is a land that is yours, but it is flowing with milk and honey. It is a prosperous place. It is a glorious place. It is an incredible place, and I'm giving it to you. You did nothing to deserve it, did nothing to earn it. You can't work your way there. You can't get there by your own merit or your own try. I'm going to lead you to this place. I'm going to smite the enemies in the land that I'm going to take you through. You are going to follow me, and I will lead you to the promised land. And what did the Israelites do? The Israelites, even though God was a pillar, and he was a pillar by day and a fire by night, the miracle of the Red Sea, setting free from the slavery of Egypt, what did Israel constantly do? 
as they're journeying through the pilgrim's progress to the promised land, they are constantly looking back to Egypt, where they were once enslaved. And they said, well, but in Egypt we had food to eat, or we had this, or we had that. Or They were always looking back to Egypt. And God says, listen, oh, I set you free. You are not a slave to Pharaoh anymore. Why would you want to go back and be a slave to him? You've now be set, been set free by me. And I am leading you and I'm providing for you and I am, I am protecting you and I am taking you to a place of unbelievable prosperity, joy, happiness, and peace. And the Jews would constantly look back to where? Egypt. This is where many Christians live. Don't miss this. You have been set free from the power of sin. Listen to me. Satan, who is symbolic of Pharaoh, don't miss this. You were enslaved underneath the hard hand of Satan. And he was oppressive in your life. He has come to kill and to steal and to destroy. That's what he's come to do. Jesus says, I have come to give you life and to give it more abundantly. So what happened? Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary, he purchased your freedom from the enemy, Satan. And what did he do? He redeemed you, a people, for himself. And what is Christ doing by his Holy Spirit? He is now leading you to where? Heaven. That's where we're headed. We are sojourning through the wilderness called life. And he is leading us where? To glory. That's where he's taking us. But many Christians are going through this life and there's difficulties, there's challenges, there's, there's things you don't understand, just like the Jews. And they're just going, you know what, I had it better when I was back in, in, in Egypt. I had it better back under the old system, if you will, which is a lie. And what does Satan do to most Christians? He pursues them just like Pharaoh did. And he comes to you and he tries to make you believe that you have to obey what he says you need to do. He reminds you of what you once were. He reminds you of what you once did. He helps you remember the people you did it with, the places that you did it, the things that, that have been done to you. You don't forget those things. And the enemy uses that to keep you looking back to Egypt. And all the while, God says no. Don't offer the instruments of your body back to Egypt. Don't go there. Now offer the body as instruments unto righteousness. Why? Because you are a, a child of the king of life and glory and freedom. That's who you are in Christ. And what happens as we sojourn through life, many Christians still keep the instruments of their body over here in Egypt, and yet they make a profession that they're following the king of glory. It doesn't work that way. Let me give you an example of this about being all in. 26 years ago, next week, now I'm going to give you my age. <clears throat> I am 27, so we'll just keep it that, right? <laughs> 26 years ago next week, I stood before God, before my bride, before my family, and before my friends. In a ceremony, the covenant of marriage. And I stood there side by side with my wife. And I was doing something very significant on that day. 
I was making a statement, a profound statement. My life from that day was going to change, and it was never going to be the same again. Because up to the point of me making the vow and me committing this before God, my wife, my family, and my friends, I entered into a covenant here. Before I did that, at any given moment, there's something I had the freedom to do. Guess what it was? <laughs> right? I'm sure she wishes she would have run at times, right? But the truth is, what I was doing was I was saying this to my wife and to all those gathered there. From this day forward, I am all in. I took the pile of coins and cash that I had on my table and I slid them to the middle of the table and I laid my hand down. I was all in, baby. All in. And what was I saying to the rest of the world? I was saying this to my wife. What if I'd have said, now, sweetheart, let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to have ourselves a pretty nice ceremony, right? Your dad's going to spend some money on dresses and cake and all these different things. Yeah, it's going to be a pain to him, but it's going to look pretty, right? And what we're going to do is we're just going to go through a pretty ceremony, and we're going to say some words. But I want you to know that I'm not committing myself to you. I want you to know that my feet can take me to wherever they want to take me. I want you to know that my eyes are going to look at whatever they want to look at. I want you to know that my heart's going to give itself to whomever it wants to give itself to. I want you to know that my hands are going to put itself and hug and give affection to whomever I want it to, but we're going to have a nice ceremony here. What do you think my sweet bride would have said? No, she would have said something worse than that. And this is where Paul is hitting the mark here. He says, I mean, literally no one forced me to marry my wife. In fact, when I met my wife, oh, I want to marry this woman. Nobody said, hey, buddy, there has been some shotgun weddings, but that wasn't the case. I wanted to marry my wife. See, when Christ came to you and revealed his incredible love for you, when you heard your name that the God of all creation was drawing you unto salvation, do you know what you didn't do? Ah, you can have that. No, what did you do? Oh, God, save me, a wretched sinner. You ran to him. And what Paul is getting at, he says this, now that you understand something here, what we don't do is we don't enter into this relationship. The Bible gives us an incredible illustration here in Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to wrap it up with this so you can understand it. The truth is, when I made those vows before my wife, this is what I was basically saying. For the rest of the females on this planet... You are off limits, and I'm off the market. That's what I'm saying. For the rest of my life, my wife, you will receive my affection and you only, except for my daughter Madeline gets a hug, and I love my daughter. 
I will not be kissing other women. I will not be giving affection to other women. I will not be focusing my life on other women. I will not be taking my feet and pursuing other women. What am I doing? I am committing my entire self to you for my lifetime. It's all in, baby. That's what it is. It's all in. And the reason the vows are so very important and the reason the Christian life is so real because we have to understand this. The reason I said for better Whoa, God, thank you for the better times. What about the worse? Because you're going to have it in marriage. Whoa, for better, for worse, for richer. Thank you, Lord. Boy, these are good days. What about the days when you can't even make the mortgage payment and the car payment's late and the light bill is on the verge because you've lost your job, gone through a difficult time. It's better, for richer, for poorer. That's in there. Oh, man, thank you, God, for the health. Woo, man, this is awesome. What happens when one of you gets sick? In sickness and in health. Then this one. Forsaking all others. Being faithful and true. I pledge you my All in. But this is what the enemy does. When you go through marriage, it's no different than the Christian life. There's times where you're really on the high, on the love. And then you hit a season where it's like, she thinks to me, like, why did I even date that guy? And then there's times where this is up here. And then there's this down here. And there's this up here. And there's this down here. And you know what happens if we're not careful? We forget. And you know what we end up doing? We look back to Egypt. And all the while, it's all right here. It's all here. What happens in a marriage relationship when one person says, I'm no longer all in? It's all over. That's what happens. That's exactly what happens. Let me show you something in Ephesians chapter 5, and then we'll wrap this up. Ephesians 5. Starting in verse 22. Let me read through here quickly. We've got just a few minutes left, and then we'll finish this up. Hopefully this will make good sense to you. This is the passage I use in all my, my, my wedding ceremonies. They're actually, I don't do ceremonies. They're more of a covenant. When God ordained marriage... He already had within his own mind the church in Christ already. And he developed marriage in such a way that it would point a picture to Christ and this incredible bride he has and this incredible oneness that he has and this relationship that he has. And our marriages are to, to emulate this exact thing. This is what it says. Starting in verses 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even Christ the head of the church, his body. Think about that. Do you know what we are? We are the body of Christ. I tell you what is really, really disheartening, though, if you think about it, in our own lives, that he's the head and we're his body, the church. But when the church begins to do things that is gratifying the things of the old man, it's pretty difficult to show the world what the body of Christ looks like. And then he moves on and he says this, now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
And then he gets into the role of the husband, which is the role that Christ plays. The wife plays the role the church plays. And what's going on here is an emulation to the world about what this whole thing is, the relationship between God and between his church and Christ and the bride. Did you know Jesus is coming for the bride? Did you know that? You're called the bride of Christ. You're called the body of Christ. You're called the saints of God. You're called all of these incredible things. Why? Because you belong to God in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself. Listen to this. In splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be, here's that same word again, that she might be holy. Do you know what that means? The church is set apart unto God. That we have been called out as a bride, a peculiar people, only to belong to God and to God alone. We don't belong to the world anymore. I don't offer my parts of my body to the things of the world anymore. Why? Because I am in Christ and I have said I am all in, baby. I'm all in. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ will never stop being all in? Never will be. And when we do, and when there's times that I don't love my wife the way Christ loved the church, and I do love her at times far below what Christ loves the church, and I confess that and admit that, and it's, con- it, it's convicting for me. Every time I do a pre-marriage counseling, I'm convicted and go to my wife and say, man, I fall short in so many of these areas. And you know what my wife gives me? Grace. When my wife has a tough day, Guess what I give her? Grace. When you as a Christian walk in these roads called life, real life, where real things happen, real difficulties, real experiences, real, 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 you know what God gives us every single day of our life? He gives us grace. And when we step up, we flip up, we, we screw it up, guess what God does? Grace. That's what we do in our marriage relationships. And we do a lot of giving of grace. Why? Because we need the grace of our spouse. Thank God that my wife has offered me 26 years of grace. Thank God that he will never stop issuing you and me grace. What an incredible God we have. What an incredible God we have. Amen? All right, quickly we're going to finish this up. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. <clears throat> now I want to move down here. In verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes for it, just as Christ does for the church. That's what he does for us. Because we are members of his body. Paul talks about this mystery here. It is when a husband and wife are joined together, they become something, one flesh. And you know what I can guarantee and tell you about that? You can take two popsicle sticks together and just touch them. If there's no glue, you pull them apart. But the moment you become one flesh, you can never pull that thing apart and it be individual ever, ever again. 
There are splinters and fragments and broken pieces. You might get them pulled apart, but it won't look like the same popsicle sticks. Do you know why? Because God so ordained that when two people come together, they become one flesh at a much deeper place than the physical. It goes to the soul of a man. And when you and I are placed in Christ Jesus, the Bible says we become one flesh with him. God's amazing. He's incredible. So what does Paul say? He says, listen, you belong to Christ. Christian, you're the bride of Christ. You are the body of Christ. Satan wants you to look back to slavery, Pharaoh, Egypt, all of those things. And lie and deceive and pull and drag and entice and everything. But what does Jesus say? Be led by the Spirit of God. We're going somewhere. Offer the parts of your body. That little kid's song. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. For the Father up above, he is looking down in love. So be careful what you do. Offer the parts of your body as instruments of righteousness. In other words, he says this, Christian, live on the outside what you are on the inside. Stop looking at the behavior and start dealing with the soul. That's what we are. We're in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. If anyone needs prayer this morning, the lodge will be open for prayer. And I know we have pastors and elders who'd love to pray with you in there. And so please make your way in there as well. Thank you all for being here today. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, just because we become a Christian doesn't mean life somehow puts us in a vacuum of wrapped bubble wrap. We're, we're, it, it, no, life is real. And God, you knew it would be. Lord, for everyone here, God, this is just real practical stuff. That, that the enemy keeps enticing back to Egypt. Lord, let them know that they have been set free from that. Satan has no dominion, no power, no authority in their life at all anymore. Why? Because they belong to you. Just as our wives, there's no man that has any authority in the wife, in my wife's life. None. Because she belongs to me. Father, we belong to you. And for all of us, every one of us, God, thank you that you provide grace. It's here today. Lord, forgiveness, grace, and mercy. That's what mercy and grace is. You're, you're forgiving, you're, you're, you're helping, you're moving us along, you're, you're, you're encouraging us, God. You're doing all those things. So, Lord, for anyone here today that just needs to be encouraged, I pray that today they would find the grace and mercy of God is real and it's in this place and it's always available through Christ. So, Lord, as we begin to walk this life of being in Christ now, we're married to Christ. <laughs> we're his bride. May we look at the world and say this, I'm off the market. Satan, I'm off the market, man. I belong to God. I am His and His alone. And I offer my body as a living sacrifice to Him. It's for Him, 
through him and to him that I belong. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.